0: Let me pray. Father, we bow before you recognizing your lordship again and um, we feel comforted and we feel small in the presence of your strength and your majesty. And I pray that as we look at our world, we would not be overwhelmed by the size and the nature of our world, but we would see your sovereignty over that too and we would find comfort. We would find ourselves called to be ambassadors of reconciliation and comfort and bring peace to a world that needs it. So in these moments um, where we get to turn our hearts and our minds completely over to your spirit, we ask for you, the great teacher by your spirit to teach us in Jesus name, amen. All right, so into, back into philosophy, all excited? Woohoo! It's so funny because after this class, some people like, what is this? I want to talk more about this. What do you call this? And it's philosophy. And other people say, I'm so glad that's over with. And I don't ever want to talk about it again. So now we're going to talk about um, the offering of redemption that we have into the philosophical culture. So we already talked about what the problem is in post-modernity, what the idea, olatry, or what the pseudo-god of of, um, philosophy right now is in post-modernity, which is this whole idea of deconstruction, the whole idea of disconnecting uh, the symbols and their meaning, and what that means for us, what that means for us who are trying to communicate truth, we're trying to communicate meaning, we're trying to give a sense of purpose back into our life, Um, into the life of the world, and the difficulty is it feels like in this postmodern context that truth is up for grabs. So that's what I want to talk about, the nature of truth and how you know anything you know. This is not in your notes, so if you're interested, you're going to have to take a little extra off on the side. There are three ways you know everything that you know. You only know what you know one of these three ways. This is called epistemology, (laughs) Um, which interestingly um, has in its root the Greek word for trust, faith, what we get the word faith from. But epistemology, you know everything you know three ways. The first way that you know most of what you know is wrapped up in the Greek word gnosko. Which we get Gnostic from G-N-O-S-T-O, Gnosto, Gnos K-O. Sorry, um, I just see it in the original language, and there's not a K. But there, the idea is that most of what you know, you know because you've experienced it empirically. You know something. Like I could tell you about chocolate. I could try to describe it for you. It's dark brown, it's milky, or it's dark, it's rich, it can be creamy. But I can't tell you what it tastes like, because chocolate only tastes like chocolate. chocolate. So I can't describe it for you. What words would you use to describe chocolate? <laughs> you can't. There is nothing. <laughs> what? Love. Love yeah. Uh, it's, but once you've tasted it, then you know what chocolate tastes like. Because you've experienced it. And some of you are so tactile and experiential that even bringing it up you can kind of taste it in your mouth right now. Anybody like that? You can kind of, just because we started talking about it, you have this feeling. But it's still inexplicable. You can't tell anybody, you can't describe, you can't give somebody a knowledge of chocolate. They just have to do it. And most of what you know you've learned that way. It's just called empirical knowledge. You've experienced it, and therefore you know. The second way you can know anything is pure rationality. You reason it out. Um, two plus two equals four. You don't have any taste in your mouth. <laughs> There's nothing that you have to sense or feel about that. It's just a rational reality. In fact, it exists at a, as a rational reality before you ever get told that. And there are mathematical realities, rational mathematical realities that still exist, that exist and are very real that we can't explain. We don't yet have the math to describe every mathematical reality. And there's a ton, anybody in here really like math? Because there's a ton of math that most of us don't understand even though we've been taught it. Can I get an amen out there from somebody? The only C I ever got in college was in the one math class I had to take. Um, and, um, it was statistics, so all you smart mathematical people, and this is just rational knowledge, second category, and you can just think it through. You can take two and add it to two and get four, and you know that two plus two equals four. You don't have to experience it. You don't have to have two of everything. You just rationalize it. You just put it together rationally, which is not rationalizing. I didn't use that word correctly. So... And if you've had like an elementary logic class and you say, all men are mortal, Jacob is a man, therefore Jacob is mortal. We can just rationally figure that out. We don't have to go kill as many people as possible to find out that out of 100 that you kill, 100 die. You don't have to do that, nor do we have to kill Jacob to find out. We can do, no, we don't have to. We've got rationality, we don't need to kill him. So we don't have to experience it. What? We don't have to experience it, we can just put together the rationality behind it. Does that make sense? So this is rational knowledge, and you don't have to experience it. The third kind of knowledge, and this is the way, this is exactly what we're doing right now, and that is called knowledge by authority. This is the basis of school. Um, or the idea of history or idea of the news channel. Has anybody here been in Syria in the last two months? Anybody? But can you tell me in broad strokes what's going on in Syria? Yes. Why? Not because you've experienced it, not because you rationally figured it out, but because somebody told you. So if we heard a massive commotion outside, and Josh Duff came running in here and said, I need three people to help me. There has been a huge car accident out here. We would probably believe him. We probably wouldn't go, no, Josh, you're such a kidder. We'd probably believe him. If he was really urgent, we would really believe him. So in a certain sense, a lot of what you know, you've taken on faith, trusting the person who said it to you. Even right now, I've just told you there's only three ways you can know everything that you've ever known and will ever know, epistemologically, I mean uh, empirically, rationally, and by authority. Now, you could try to tell me there's another way that you know something, but you'd have to prove it to me, because right now, you're all quiet and I'm talking, so I must be the authority. So this is how we know anything. This is how anybody knows anything. This is how any truth is derived. Now let's move from that epistemology to the nature of truth. What is truth? <clears throat> truth is whatever fits reality best. And you should be thinking about this and writing this down because um, this is the conversation that you'll get into. This is the potential argument that awaits you is what is the nature of truth? How do I know things are true? And truth always fits reality best. So you make a truth claim, and you can try to prove it rationally, or you can try to give somebody the experience of it, but when it comes down to it, it's only true in that it really fits the way things really are. So let's take just scientific methodology, which is not rational, it is empirical. Rational, uh, scientific methodology is, you make an observation, over and over usually, Based on that observation, you make a theory. And then you set up an experiment, which is just like an experience, to try to prove that your hypothesis or your theory is true. Are you with me? So that's, and, and most people would say, wait, I thought science was rational. It can be. The mathematical side of science is very rational. But science itself is empirical. It's by experience that you figured out. And if someone else can do the same experience, and get the same result, you have a proven theory. You have a a substantiated theory. Science's objective is to describe reality, is to describe what really is. And so you get a scientific fact, and you say, it is true because it fits reality. Does that make sense? All truth is truth in so much as it fits reality. Now we're gonna talk more about science later. Right now we're just talking about how you know what truth is and why the bid for truth is such a high and important reality. You have to, somebody has to make some kind of truth claim. Truth is not relative. Reality is not (laughs) relative. Reality is very real. That's why we call it reality. And so when we're making a truth claim, even if it's a God-based truth claim, it still has to fit reality. So now let's get to the notes. How we know what we know is epistemology. How you know what you know is one of those three ways. When we have revealed truth, which is what we have in scripture, we're taking this on good authority. Just like I would a scientific experiment. If I read about it in a scientific journal and I didn't have the time or the money to do the experiment myself, I would trust what I read. I do it a lot and I'm trusting an authoritative source. That's what this is. And it's just as authoritative as any other source. And people will tell you, no, it's not. This is just people's opinion. Most truth claims are. You have to pick the opinion that best fits reality the way you understand it. Are you still with me? I know I'm swimming in some deep water, but I just wanna make sure that you understand we have a valid claim to understanding the truth and it doesn't take faith. I have to trust my authority, but we do this all the time. We trust the authorities that are over us. We trust the people who have studied. We trust the people who have been there. And what we have, like it, particularly in the New Testament in the Gospels, we have eyewitness testimony. That's how John closes his gospel. Jesus did a lot of other things, great miracles. He said a lot of important things. There's no book that could hold them all, but I wrote these things down so that you would know that he's the son of God and that you would trust him he's an eyewitness account and I have to decide whether I'm going to trust him or not does that make sense so this is a kind of truth it's revealed truth and does it stand empirical tests does the truth claim here work in your experience does this truth change your life because that is a valid test That's called empirical knowledge. Okay? Yes? This might be
1: kind of a dumb question. What's the difference between faith and trust?
0: Trust is just a better word. And it's not that faith isn't a good word for it. It's just that in our culture, people have put faith on the opposite side of rationality. But trust is relational. Trust is what happens between people. And it happens over time. So trust happens. You're doing it right now that you're trusting your chairs, all of you are. And you've been trusting the same chair for a while. And I'm sure if somebody broke a chair, and they didn't want to sit in it, and they swapped it for your chair, you would stop trusting the chairs. There would be this one chair that nobody trusts, and it kind of keeps moving around. Um, I don't know if you've ever trusted a chair. You shouldn't have trusted I have. I've trusted a chair. I trusted a chair at a friend's house in Black Butte, this beautiful house. And I leaned back in the chair and the whole back of this big, huge hardwood chair just broke off. Now, I'm not small, so I kind of get it, but I'm not that big, I mean, come on. And the back of this chair, I literally fell over backwards out of the chair. My wife's like, what did you do? We'll never come back to this house again. And I found somebody in Bend who could fix it and I gave him 85 bucks and he literally rebuilt the back of this chair and put it back on. He said, you know what, this has been done before. Somebody just glued it together. It's like, it wasn't me, it wasn't me who did it. So you can start figuring those kinds of things out. Yeah. <laughs> and you learn these things uh, and what you should trust. And ever since then, I sit in somebody else's chair, I don't just do the full like 100% lean back. Because I'm worried, especially if it's a wooden chair. Or people my size, you have to be careful of those plastic chairs, like patio chairs that are really easy to stack and really easy to squish. Especially if you're just sitting on slippery cement, you sit down and all four legs do the Bambi, like whoop, got you straight down. So you learn to not trust a chair, you learn not to put your full weight into it. But nobody came in here and checked their chair, nobody checked the legs, you just come in, you have an experience over time that your chair is gonna hold you and you just sit down in it, but that's the nature of trust. People do it all the time. I was serving with uh, uh, the people who go to Guatemala with us some people are from our church some people are from other churches and this gal was crying over in the corner one night about halfway through our week of ministry and she was there as a i think an eye glasses specialist or something like that and um, I said what's wrong and she said oh, I just wish I had faith like you do but I guess I'm just too scientifically minded oh yeah cuz you're just so smart right but she wasn't trying to say that she was sad because it was hard for her She didn't have a category for faith. I said, yes, you do. You're sitting on a bench and you're trusting it completely right now. She said, what does that have to do with anything? I said, you have faith. You just need to figure out what to put it in for the big questions in your life. But you didn't use scientific methodology to figure out this bench would hold you. You just sat down and trusted it. And that's all it takes in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's a great question. What's the difference between faith and trust? Trust is just a better word because it makes more sense to us in our culture. And it's because faith has been downgraded as something that's not rational. We even talk about it that way. Christians even talk about faith that way. You go as far as your mind can take you and then after that you just trust. That's a ridiculous description of faith. That's not what faith is at all. So we have empirical tests because there has to be some kind of truth claim in life. Uh, it's not possible to avoid some kind of statement about the way life really is. Otherwise, there's just no meaning in life at all. It either has meaning, and we can understand, we can grasp that meaning, we can live by that meaning, or there's no meaning at all, which is what Nietzsche was trying to say. There is no absolute meaning. There is only um, experience, what you can grab hold of. So. When you start thinking of truth claims, Jay Buzhyshevsky, in his book, um, What We Can't Not Know, one of the greatest titles in the world, uh, What We Can't Not Know, that's what we just by definition all know, he said, if your objection to P, proposal P, supposes P, then you have not given us any grounds to disbelieve the proposal, P. Rather, you've given us grounds to think that you know P after all. So let's take P out, the proposal, and just say, there is a creator God. So if your objection is, there is a creator God, and you're objecting that, you're saying there is no creator God, but you presuppose a creator God to whom you're going to object, you haven't proven the point that there is no creator God. In fact, what you've proven is that there's a creator God to whom you object. Does that make sense? Or does it feel like something Paul would say? Yeah, right? (laughs) But see, this, and this happens in our culture. People say things like, there is no real truth. But you're making an absolute claim, which means that's got to be true. If there is no real truth, but you're claiming there's no real truth, then what you're saying isn't true, therefore there is real truth. Are you with me? Yeah. Yeah. How can you hate something that doesn't exist? Yeah. Or just the very fact that you hate God. I mean, (laughs) you must believe he exists, because hate is a really strong emotion. Mm -hmm. Like, if something doesn't exist, the most you could give it is apathy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if you really hate something, you're presupposing. Not only that, you're presupposing things that God has done that have made you hate him. Back there it's Right here it's Three Stooges That's a Three Stooges reference Charlie's Angels Versus the Three Stooges Who would win? So some kind of truth claim In our world is inevitable And when people just Decry and say there is just no truth claim Which is the postmodern angst is there's nothing is true. Well, that's not, that's not true. Because we have this reality and our truth claims are only trying to give us a way to live in this reality. You make a truth claim as a way to function in reality. Okay, so let's just play this out. My truth claim is God is sovereign and he is good. I live my life in light of that. That changes the way I live my life. If something happens and it's otherwise bad, My truth claim is, God's totally in control, and he's good. So when something happens that I perceive as bad, I need to redefine it. I need to recalibrate it. Otherwise, I need a new truth claim. How many of you have had something bad happen to you? How many of you, in the end, saw something bad turn into one of the better things that's happened to you? (laughs) So I make my truth claim here. Hold on to my foundational principle that God is good and that he's sovereign. And by the time he's done showing me what he's doing, I say, yep, God is good and he's sovereign. Even though back here, I had to hang on to my truth claim, I had to trust it. Because that was not my experience. Now it is my experience verified. So in our world, everybody's making a truth claim. I found myself saying to a lot of people, your age in the midst of this conversation, you have to be brave enough to posit the best answer you can for the hardest questions you face and then live with it. You You have to be brave enough to posit the best answer, to propose the best answer you can to the hardest questions you have and then live with it. And that's the brave part. If you can live with it, that takes the great bravery. For me, (laughs) The best answers I have are in revealed truth. They bring the most sense, they make the most, the most verifiable answers in my experience for the hardest questions in life. And that is truth. Truth is whatever fits reality best. Is there an absolute truth? Well, there has to be because there's an absolute reality. Really. Okay, so any questions about this? What does the last sentence mean? <clears throat> so there are truth claims that are not compatible. I, mean, like, when you read it. I was going to say that. What do you mean? Like, you want can't me to just read it? it oh, you have to, I, I, it's, it's a fragment. <laughs> you have to know which mutually exclusive truth claims is truly true. <coughs> not is, is truly true. Is that what your point is? There was too many ises.
1: There and, is life, that. And, the light, <laughs> and then I tried reading it with only one is, and then I still was having troubles understanding
0: what it meant. Yeah. So there are truth claims that actually are mutually exclusive. They, they don't fit together. Like life is full of meaning or life is meaningless. You can't have both. So you have to choose a truth claim, the one that is most truly true. Does your life really prove that life is meaningless? Or does your life prove that there really is meaning? You have to choose which one of those truth claims fits reality best. And that's the best answer I can give about the nature of truth, because people ask me this frequently. How do you know what's true? What fits reality best? Whose reality? Yep. Yours, ours. All of our realities. What answers best? The realities that we live in. I have this conversation with people a lot about the nature of truth, about what is truth, and how do you know something's true. <coughs> Any other questions? Yeah? How does this um, with Because things are not relative. I mean, uh, um, reality is not relative. The best you can give somebody is our perspective on reality is different. But that doesn't change the reality. So you're sitting there looking at me, I'm standing here looking at you. Your perspective is different than mine. If I said, Describe your perspective of this room, it would not be 29 other faces facing you, they're facing me. So you would describe a reality that is this room, and I would describe one that is this room, but they would not be the same. The room is Solid. It's absolute. Your perspective is different than mine. So it doesn't change the nature of the room. Truth is not relative. Perspective is. But that's hard to get people to understand, because they think that the way that they look at the world is the only way to look at the world. Like if you've grown up in a tragic family, and life has been horrible to you, and you've had this tragic experience, and it's amazing that you're still alive. And somebody says, life is good. Your perspective is, no, it isn't. That's your perspective. That's not truth. That's a perspective. Mm-hmm. But we confuse that all the time. Christians <laughs> confuse that all the time. So then in order to get reality is, you need more than one person. Yes. Hence the postmodern hermeneutic, which is a collective hermeneutic. Instead of viewing reality because of an authority source, you view, rea- you view truth as a representation of reality from a collective perspective. That's like what the UN tries to do. The United Nations tries to get perspectives of the world leading nations and put them all in one room and say, how do you view this conflict or this economy or this political structure? That's like one of the points of the UN is to make sure that there's a common perspective versus just one mega power versus another mega power. One perspective versus another, and whoever has the most weapons wins. Are you comfortable with the concepts here? I know it's hard, but I just wanna help your conversations with people. That's my hope, my goal. So we're talking about philosophical culture, which is a search for truth. I'm saying truth is whatever fits reality best. And reality is spiritual, it's factual, it's historical, it's comical, it's all these things together. So I'm not talking about spiritual truth exclusive of other truth. I think that's one of the grounds that we've given over. Oh, that's spiritual truth, you have to just accept it on faith. No, it's either true or it's not true. And if it's true, then it matches reality, period. Like, Are you thinking of something specific well, that you think like, doesn't how fit, does fit this category? That's that's a matter of perspective. So, they're saying Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, which is how I would categorize our religions—not Christian. <laughs> okay, um, and I would have to say. Does that fit reality? Does that fit um, not just historical reality, does that fit reality in terms of man's, humankind's separation from God being fixed? Are we still separated from God or are, are we reconciled to God? If we're reconciled to God, it took an agent of reconciliation. Who is that guy? So. Going back to what she said, I would say, people who just say, well, that's just your perspective, you're absolutely right. But from my perspective, I'm trying to find the best answers to the hardest questions and be brave enough to live them. Those answers to me, in large part, come out of revealed truth. I trust this. You want to stand and stretch real quick? (laughs) Because you all look really, like, glassy-eyed. Any other questions?
1: I'm still trying to figure out what you said
0: and, like, wrap my mind around it. So you have reality. I'm not going to be able to say what I said before. Right. Okay. You have reality, and you make a claim about that reality. That's truth. But if you're seeing that reality this way, your, your perspective on truth will be different than somebody who sees reality this way. It doesn't mean that the reality is different. It's just that your pers- perspective on it is different. Therefore, your truth claim is going to be different about that reality. There is truth in this world, that's what I'm trying to say. And there's a great basis that we have as followers of God that our truth claims answer the hardest questions of reality best. They offer us the best meaning in life. So let me move us to the wonderful world of technology. talk about technological culture so I'm going to skip um, the biblical reference that is there because it's a whole nother discussion (laughs) it's a whole nother layer of discussion so technological culture is different entirely different than philosophical culture aren't you glad (laughs) this is this is way more relevant to the way we live our lives because we live in such a technological culture technology has all but redefined our experience culturally Name some technologies that impact you every day. The okay. What
1: is
0: <laughs> it's a smartphone. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, it's because people don't know how to be
0: Okay, what else? <laughs> Facebook. Okay. GPS. Yeah, transportation is a major technology that has completely radically altered the Western world. GPS. I'm gonna go with just digital technology. We could just say digital technology. Electricity. Electricity. Others? Technologies that impact your life all the time. Indoor plumbing. Indoor plumbing, yay! Let's hear it for indoor plumbing. One of our huge things about going to these impoverished communities in Guatemala is it makes you so thankful for little things like indoor plumbing and running water. Food storage, refrigeration, and vacuum packing. Yes, yep, absolutely. In all different medias. Medical technology, if you're wearing glasses or if you have in contacts, um, you're part bionic. (laughs) Or if you have something inside of you that's holding like an ankle together that's screwed together. That's all medical technology that's radically changed our world. Yes. And the mass communication. We have immediate communication. We have mass communication. So these are the technologies that have impacted our life. And in large part, we're really grateful for them. But how does technology make life not better? What are the risks of technology? You get sucked into it, reliant on it. Like there's nothing nothing worse than leaving just enough time to get somewhere and walk out and find out you have a flat tire. It's like, I was counting on you, or if you don't have a Mac and your computer crashes all the time, um, just that helpless feeling that it's that you were relying on it. And right in the middle of what you were trying to do, Microsoft decided to update you and do you a favor. Yeah. How else does technology hurt? Is your hand up? Yes. OK. Um, so um, in some ways, it causes isolation. Very good. Um,
1: inability to actually do things on our own. Like my parents, and stuff, which were probably around your age, like they can build a fire and they can live on their own. Like if you know power went out and all of that stuff i mean they're capable of living pretty much everybody in our generation will die because, <laughs> like they can't build a fire they've never been camping they don't know how to go back <laughs> from outside
0: but you might be generalizing a little bit but i think we get your point well,
1: yeah like and then also at the same time as isolation but we're so addicted to our phones we can't go anywhere without them like if we don't have them we don't know what time it is we don't know what's going on, like,
0: blah, blah, blah. And then usually when you get it, nobody
1: contacted you anyways. But I mean, it's
0: not urgent if you don't have that connection. Yep. Yeah, one of my huge pet peeves is people texting when they're driving. It's like, I feel like when you get in a 1,500-pound <laughs> motorized vehicle, you should have one thing to do, and it's not text, right? I'm like that horrible 50-year-old man that honks.
1: There's um, time we have to fill up. We just are on our, you know, technology devices or whatever. Instead of finding ways to enjoy like nature or you know stuff like that, I just remember hearing someone say it just reduces
0: your of creativity. It does reduce creativity. And necessity is the mother of invention. And if everything's done for us, it, we're not challenging ourselves to be inventive. We're not challenging ourselves to solve our own problems. just work from the front to the back. Uh, I think it causes, well, like isolation, actually, but
1: it causes us to have problems communicating, learning, knowing how to communicate with one another, and especially with, like, Facebook and <coughs> Instagram, like, your information's on there, and so people can learn about you, people that you don't want to know. Like, I think private anymore. Anyway. So
0: All my stuff's private, <laughs> and I'll tell you why because none of it's out there, because <laughs> that's a choice I made, yes? Um I remember before, we don't remember as much of the culture back, remember basically everything we did, or well, we don't remember as much now because when you write it down, it's like, oh, I can go back to my notes and find out instead of just making sure we listen. Yeah, and even how we think, I think that TV has just made us dumb. So you guys have been like TV-less for most of the time you've been here, right? or relatively compared to your like former life before you came to <laughs> faith in Jesus through Ecola. Um But that's one of the huge problems is people just have not figured out how to think much anymore or how to follow a story. Yes. Yeah, or they would do it really differently if they were a person like they would actually be nice, yeah, yeah. And to because of the medical? Yes, we still die, but we die much slower right now. Well, and I think there's a, a, a question that goes tandem with that. And that is, are we, are we really offering better life because it's longer? Because I work with a lot of old people. And I think if nature had taken its course, their last little part of the journey would have been much happier. I've seen some, seen some people just go through horrific things based on just longevity. Yeah. Uh-huh. Technology has advance so fast and so much, you don't necessarily have to do with it, you don't have the experience, because it's just exploded. And that's true on all these technologies on all these levels, this, this moral lapse, this wisdom lapse. Uh, like in the first Jurassic Park, back when you were kids, the very first one, the Jeff Goldblum character, that you got so busy thinking of how you could do it, you forgot to ask yourself if you should do it. And I think that describes technology really well.
1: Also, it changes the way our brain functions. It actually is affecting our chemical illnesses, like the LED like, if you use it two hours before you use, go to bed, which all of us do, it makes it, it to doesn't create positive, like, um, hormones. So you're, you don't have as many endorphins. So you're actually more depressed. So it actually affects, like, how we our chemicals in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have two. Well, it that affects society like crazy. So, like, like, the easy sign was, like, a flip phone. My gosh, you have a flip phone, like you don't have a smartphone. (laughs) Sorry, okay, I didn't mean. Sorry, but this is kind of like you feel like you kind of no, no hits against the flip phones are awesome, but like, um, like I don't know. I feel like it creates this idea as a family that like even if you're super poor, you need to be able to make sure you can afford that nice cell phone in front of someone. Like that you put on this outward appearance that isn't really there and that you can't afford, so it creates a cycle in you. But also like with our smartphones and end up being so readily accessible, we also are more accessible to our temptation of sin. So like pornography, like you could go on your phone in 10 seconds have hundreds of porn sites right in your hand, whereas you'd have to go out like only like 23 years ago, you'd have to go back and actually go out and buy the magazine and like that kind of stuff. So with the
0: great power came great responsibility, which we let down. Yeah, which goes back to her point. Yeah. technology has outpaced our wisdom so let's talk about the pseudo god of technology informationism and informationism (laughs) in all the technologies that we've talked about and this is one of the readings that I would highly recommend to you habits of the high-tech art um, that is you have just a little bit of it in your notes and I would really highly recommend that you take a look at it. And one of the quotes out of Schultz in this is, information is informationism is a faith in the collection and dissemination of information as a route to social progress and personal happiness. Um, and this is based on the old ideology that knowledge is power. <coughs> and that the more you know, the more powerful you are. And that has come down to just facts. The more facts you know the presupposition is, the more powerful you are. And that's actually transferred over into evangelicalism. Like the more of your Bible you know, the more spiritual you are, which is not necessarily true. But we've been kind of told that along the way, that if you want to know God, you have to know his word, which is true. And, but then there's this converse that just because you know a lot of his word doesn't mean that you actually really know God. So we've we've even fallen for this in in terms of the written word. But it's led to this sense of being disconnected, as was mentioned before. There's an isolationism that comes out of informationism. Like rather than sitting with you and hearing your story, I'll just look at your Facebook page, you know, as though that is a way for me to know you. Which basically on Facebook, all you're knowing is what people want you to think of them. And you're not really hearing any of their story at all. You're not looking at the look in their eyes, you're not looking at what affects them and makes them sad, or what speeds them up and, and shows that they're passionate about something. There's a danger in confusing the medium and the message. And This is old, um, an old thought because it literally predates most of our digital technology, and digital technology has just put this like on steroids. And the problem is trying to describe yourself Um, or describe your experience in a way that is not affected by the medium that you use. I mean, even here, I could give you the same information in a book. I could give you the same information in Skype. Um, There are lots of ways that I could do this, but here I sit. And there's something relational about this and there's something that we're sharing about this that's really, really important. A lot of what we do, like in Guatemala, we could just send stuff to them but there's something really important in us showing up and being there. And that's part of the difficulty is the the medium does affect the message. The media that we use changes the nature of the message. It changes the nature of the content. Another problem is we've been efficient and quick versus thoughtful and ethical. We've been pragmatic instead of really careful. And that means full of care. And you just think about, I mean, I just had a conversation last week where somebody, an older person in our congregation emailed me something and I tried to respond carefully and I just put a PS, I will not continue this conversation on email because it's just too personal. We should talk about this in person because there's so much that email doesn't do or texting doesn't do. It's like, call me, you know, people text, text, text and all of a sudden your phone rings, it's like, good. Because I should hear your voice when you say this. I shouldn't just read it and assume what your tone of voice is. Um, No matter what emoji you use, I can't hear your tone of voice. Um, So what is a theological pitfall um, in this area? And I'm using the word modernism to describe uh, a sense of instrumentality, um, that, that there are in all ways, an instrument that we could use that will get the desired effect for us. So in religion, we've adapted to technological advances, not so much like in our worship services and that kind of stuff. I really don't have any problem with technology in our worship services. Everything that happens from lights and the pipe organ and heat um, to comfy seats, that's all just technology and I like it all. I'm more concerned with the actual spiritual life of the church and how modernism creeps into that. And modernism is probably not the right word, except that the church is always trying to be as modern as possible. So we've changed our faith into a process that is almost technological. And I already described this a little bit before, the idea of being methodical or having a method for everything. And this is not just evangelical Christians. I mean, this predates the catechism. Anybody here, Roman Catholic in their background? Um, Because in Roman Catholicism, you you go through this catechism that is literally centuries old and it's a methodology that you go through to know the basics of the faith before you're confirmed, which is a confirmation of your baby baptism. So you're baptized, you go through catechism and you get confirmed and it's just another methodology. And we have these all throughout. Think of systematic theology. You know, we have organizational systems that define our faith, that define our reality. You go on any church website and you want to know more about them, you'll say, well, where's their statement of belief or their statement of faith? Um, We're looking for a youth pastor right now. and, And one of the things, you know, we have to make sure that everything's up to date because candidates look at our website first and, you know, somebody wrote me today and said, I looked at your statement of faith and I think we, we are a good fit. It's like, you looked at, you know, one document that just said very, very um, cryptically the things that we hold dear and you think that we're a good fit. We'll have to find that out because that's more an orga- organic reality. But does this make sense? We've tried to systematize things like systematic theology, which doesn't really tell me who God is. It tells me a lot about God, but if I asked you to tell me who God is to you, would you use systematic theology or would you touch your heart? Because that's the organic reality. But we make a system out of it, which I like. I mean, I, I'm fine with systematic theology. I know a lot of systematic theology, but it doesn't circumscribe my relationship with God. I'm married too, and if you ask me about my wife, I don't have a systematic Kellyology or I'll tell you everything about Kelly in a systematic way. I would laugh first and then I would have a little sigh because I'm not with her all week. And I'd probably touch my heart and I might play with my wedding ring. And I start talking about her and how she's funny when she does this. And it's so special to me when she does that. That's really different. Some of you are like, oh. uh, But that's really different than a systematic way of describing my wife. But we do the same thing with our faith. It's very, very personal. But we have this systematic way of talking about it. And we even have an interpretive methodology in trying to understand... God's words to us and God's meaning to us and we've tried to make it something that is scientific um, but really I mean if 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 um, let's say after this week one of you wrote me a letter and said while you were here this was going on in my life and and something that you prayed or blah 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 that would be very personal I probably wouldn't use a five-point classic hermeneutic to try to decipher the meaning of your letter. I wouldn't use a system, I would just use our relationship to try to understand the meaning of the letter. And that's part of the problem is we make a, a reliance on our interpretive technology, on our church technology. And I, again, I'm not talking about digital technology, I'm talking about trying to systemize our faith. Am I making sense here? Okay, so there's this modern sense, especially in evangelicalism. I really believe that if modern America created a religion, it would be what evangelicalism is. I think that's what would happen. It would be reductionistic, it would be simplistic, and it would be systematic, which is exactly what evangelicalism has become. Anybody want to differ with me on that? (laughs) Just like if the medieval era was creating a religion, Roman Catholicism is exactly what it would have created. I forget sometimes that this is recorded. So this might be my last time I'm ever here at uh, Nicola Bible College. So the key concept, the redemptive concept, the redemptive word I have in this is incarnation. Where we go back to what is organic, what is living and breathing and pulsating and vulnerable and weak and sometimes soft because... People need relationship. People need not more information. They don't need more arguments. What people need is to be loved and understood. I mean, you think if God had wanted us to know him as a systematic theology, he could have sent us an encyclopedia. He could have come at any time in history. He could have come in a digital age. God could have a Facebook Page, you know, or he could have written a mural across um, some big bluff in the Midwest and said, here's my story in pictures. But he didn't. What he did is he had a relationship with Israel before that, you know, individuals in, in relationship with Israel. And now he has a relationship with the church by his Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And that was all totally incarnated. It's all relational. It's all fleshy. And rather than making truth claims, we should just bring those claims to life. If people could see the truth in our lives, as opposed to just read about it or hear about it, it would make such a big difference. And if our personal connections were not technological connections, but actual personal touches, life on life, really being together with people and showing them the realities of God's work in our life, It would make a total difference. And this is where grace and truth come together because you don't need grace if you're not in a relationship. You only need grace if there are other people involved. Think about it. If you lived in the world all by yourself, you would need no grace. (laughs) No no one would have to put up with you. Um, You wouldn't have to put up with anybody else. You could just do whatever you wanted. Grace is part of the love relationship that God has placed us in but within that circle, within that, the beauty of grace, truth has to come to life. And that's part of why God has left us here on earth. That's part of why God didn't just save us and whoop us off up, up into heaven. I mean, if God's whole plan in sending Jesus Christ was to populate heaven, why are you still here? You're saved. What point is there in leaving you here in the midst of struggle and trial and... and the blech of humanity, if all he wanted to do is get you into heaven, what are you still doing here? And I believe that it's because he wanted to leave a body of Christ on earth. He wanted to leave an incarnated reality here on earth and that's us. And it's not to say don't use your technology, just don't get caught in your technology and understand that when you're using something technological, it is changing the message that you're trying to communicate and one of the ways that you can do it is if you carry this around and, and as people are talking to you, you're thumping your Bible all the time. People don't care what this says unless they actually see it in your life. This is just another technology. I mean, it's very beautiful in its black leather binding. And I have the pastor's Bible. So that's what it says about me. Um, but this is just a technology. This is just a, a code this isn't truth any more than holding up a sheet of music is a symphony. It's just wood pulp and ink. Something has to happen to a piece of music for it to become a symphony. Somebody has to breathe life into it. The violinists have to rosin up their, resin up their bows and be ready to play. They have to bring music to life. And that's what this is for. You can't just thump it and say, yeah, but God said, So so, show me, what difference does it make? Incarnate the truth. Don't leave it as just a technology. Make it something that's real for people. Any questions or comments? The world is not going to get less technological. The world is not going to push us together. The one thing that could do that, and this would be amazing, which I just found out because I, by circumstance, on the welcome weekend when my... Baby daughter went to George Fox for her freshman years a Welcome Weekend, and I sat next to a government-employed atomic scientist, <laughs> and I was reading a book on science, and he said, "Are you enjoying the book?" And I was like, "Because most people look at I'm reading, they're like, <laughs> they turn away, they take their fried chicken and kind of face the other way, <laughs> and this guy saw it and he was asking me like, "Are you enjoying this book?" And I said, "Yeah, what I understand of it, I really enjoy." And he said, "Well, he's kind of a hero of mine." And this guy. Like, you know who John Polkinghorn is? And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, everybody in my business, because John Polkinghorn's a nuclear physicist. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, everybody, and he said, especially the Christians who are in science, really, really like this guy. And I said, what do you do? And I, he told me what he did. And he's like, in anti, he's in nuclear anti-terrorism. That's his job. So I was like, do you need anything to drink? You know, is there anything I can do to make your life better? Um, I said, so I have this one concern. Could an enemy of America generate an electromagnetic pulse, EMP, without a nuclear detonation? Because do you know what an EMP would do to us? Like three of them strategically placed in the US would destroy our total economy our total communication system, all of media, your car, most likely your watch, except not this one, because this one just like click, 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 has springs and, you know, but most of them, your phone would just be a paperweight. Literally, it would radically alter our whole society. We are so dependent on our technology. And all of a sudden, people would have to learn how to plant vegetables because there would be no refrigeration. All the chickens... Who are already dead would be rotten. You'd have to find one that's alive to, to not have a rotten chicken. So I know, and they don't come out in McNuggets. I just want you to know. So So here's here's my parting shot. He said, that's not possible. You can't generate enough power for an electromagnetic pulse without a nuclear detonation. So that's the good news because we're de-escalating nuclear technology. Because I thought, man, if somebody comes up with something that could just like silently, non-destructively, just shut us down electronically, whoo-hoo, they would own us. And if we could figure out how to do that to somebody else, we would own them. That probably won't happen, but I'm not sure it would be bad. I think all of a sudden people would like, oh, look, a book, I could read. (laughs) I'm not watching TV, so I could read. Um, All right, any other questions or comments? You guys have been great, I know. uh, I wish I could tell you, oh, it's gonna get much easier from here, but it's not, so. (laughs) Just keep hanging in there with me. All right, let me pray. Father, we're so glad that Jesus came and showed us flesh and blood, and I'm sure He had like hummus on His breath and splinters in His fingers, and He was just a real guy. He had a real tone of voice, and He was probably had perfect pitch, but um, He was just a real person who really loved people. And when He healed people, He touched them, Um, and when He talked to people, there was a resonance and a reality in His voice. And when He wept, there were real tears. All the truth of who you are was represented fully in Jesus Christ. The ultimate technology, the ultimate communication system, you sent us your very son. And then he said, as my father sent me, I send you. And we're to go into the world and to be the body, the hands, the feet, the breath, the eyes, the voice of Jesus in the world. And that's why you've left us here So God, help us to understand our role and to bring the truth of your love to life in the relationships around us. In Jesus' name, amen.